Let us pray together. Dear God, on this glorious morning, we pause to give you thanks because we don't want to take for granted this strange and wonderful thing we do each Sunday. How we open the Bible and turn to passages that were read in Luke or written in Luke 2,000 years ago, Isaiah 2,700 years ago. And yet through these texts, as we gather around them in community and as you send us your Holy Spirit, you guide us into new truth and new grace. We thank you. And we welcome your Holy Spirit to do just that this morning. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So this morning in the uh, Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells a story that is common to human beings the world around. story about a host who invites a group of friends over for a dinner party. We've all done this, haven't we? And in this story, or probably all of us have stories as well, uh, human relationships being what they are, complicated, rich, and meaningful, probably all of us have stories about Invitations that have gone awry, perhaps, have been uh, mislaid or snubbed or perhaps forgotten. This uh, brings to mind uh, a story that uh, happened to uh, Danette and me just out of college. Some longtime friends of ours were getting married, and they sent out invitations to everyone in our circle of friends, except us. Now, we were completely baffled by this. And, uh, of course, right away we went over all of our recent interactions to them, and, you know, did Todd offend somebody again, or, you know, what happened? We couldn't think of anything. We even thought about actually calling them. But, you know, an invitation is a gift, isn't it? And not something that you require of other people. And so that wedding came, and that wedding went. And then a week later, we got a letter. The honeymooners were on the beach, lying there and reminiscing about the wedding, It wasn't that bad. (laughs) And uh, uh, suddenly they said, where were Todd and Danette? And then, I don't know if it was the husband or wife, they said, oh my goodness. We had just moved when they were sending out invitations. They set it aside, and it never got sent. They were terribly, terribly sorry, and we were just terribly relieved. 
to uh, know that our friendship was still okay. But it did give us a little insight into how very important it is to be included in these gatherings and what it feels like when you're not. What it feels like when you're not. In our Luke story today, we're still at the very same table that we were at last week, last Sunday, where a religious leader has invited Jesus and some guests over to share a Sabbath meal with him. And in their context, it's very natural for a traveling rabbi like Jesus, when passing through a village to be invited over by the local religious leaders to explore or to have his theology and his politics explored, if you want to say it nicely, or even investigated, if you want to put it differently. And it's at their table that Jesus tells today his parable about a great dinner. Now, in reading a commentary this past week that Samantha lent to me called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by Kenneth Bailey, folks, or a, a scholar that Bob and Nancy Martin actually got to know in Nazareth, I was struck in reading his analysis of this parable, in reading this, how really very little I was actually understanding about what Jesus was sharing in this story. Being 2,000 years away and half the world away as well. And so this morning I want to explore this parable in some detail, paying special attention to the cultural elements in this story that we often miss. At this religious leader's table, remember that everyone present is deeply steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures and the expectation that history will end with the coming of the Messiah, capped off by that great messianic banquet that Sheldon described for us. And so upon hearing Jesus urge the people at the table, to hold a banquet where the poor will be welcome, one of the guests at the beginning of our reading this morning exclaims, Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. In this context, the spiritually correct response from Jesus would be, Oh, that that day... Oh, that we'd keep God's law in precise detail so that when that day finally comes, we'll all be worthy to feast with the Messiah and his true followers. Jesus doesn't give that answer. Instead, he responds with a very edgy story about a wealthy man who decides to throw a great dinner. In Middle Eastern fashion, he sends out his servant to invite his many friends. And after the servant brings back all the acceptances, 
the host is now able to determine how many animals to butcher and how much food to prepare. You know, at our community meals, if only we were so fortunate to know exactly how many folks were coming. We usually have to cook for a group between 100 and 200. That's a big difference. So, and I remember as a kid growing up in the Middle East watching these great feasts being prepared, the sheep being slaughtered that early that morning for the meal that we would enjoy that evening. So after a full day of preparation and cooking, the servant is then sent out with a second invitation. This is very important. Come and get it, he says. Everything's ready. Now, in our culture, we're now at the point in a dinner party where all the guests who have gathered in the living room are being invited to go to the table in the dining room. And imagine at this point, everyone in the living room suddenly offering excuses and heading out the front door. That's what's happening in this story. And I learned this week that the excuses that the first three people give are not only just absurd, they are deliberately insulting. The first person's excuse, I bought a piece of land and now I need to go look at it. So sorry. In the Middle East, this is ludicrous because land buying is a slow, careful, drawn-out negotiation process that often stretches over months. In fact, when's the last time any of us here bought a house and then went and looked at it? Right? The second person's excuse I bought five yoke of oxen and now want to go try them out. So sorry. Clayton, when's the last time you bought a tractor? When you were farming earlier and then went and gave it a test drive. Ludicrous. And the third person's excuse. I just tied the knot. Can't come after all. Period. Don't we uh, kind of expect this third guy also to say that he needs to go see who his bride is? <laughs> and what I missed in this story, in Jesus' parable here, is that this third response is actually the rudest of them all. Did you notice? No apology is given. Wow, no apology is given. In the Middle East, after you've accepted that first invitation, you would not dream of not showing up unless you had a truly compelling and legitimate reason. Even in our culture, 
you need a really good reason not to show up for something for a dinner that you've already accepted the invitation for. Maybe there's been a death in your family. Maybe somebody's sick. Maybe there's water pouring into your basement. That's a good excuse. But the Bible scholar Kenneth Bailey says that Jesus has, a, has created a story here where there's something much more serious going on than just three people intentionally giving excuses that are unspeakably insulting to the host. There is collusion. Their intent is not only to humiliate the host, but to shut down his banquet. Think about it. If one guest at a dinner backs out, the dinner goes on, right? But when three people in a row decide not to show up, there's a strong implication here or a strong effort to lead others perhaps to do the same. So totally dissed, this servant now returns home to his master who is sitting there watching his banquet grow cold. Injustice and insult, we all know, causes great anger. Great energy is brought up when this happens to us. What will the master now do with it? in this story? Will he smear his rude guests now out on Twitter? Will he channel his rage into retaliation? No. He reprocesses his tremendous energy into grace. He reprocesses his tremendous energy now into grace. His banquet still must be shared. His house still must be filled. And so he instructs his servant now to go to the streets to gather in the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. And afterward, the servant who's beginning, beginning, beginning to catch his master's gracious vision reports that there's still room at the table. And so, the servant is now instructed to go out beyond the village to the highways and to the byways, or as we'd say here in Lancaster, down the pikes. Down the pikes. to compel people to come in so that my house might be filled. Now this word compel, maybe you choked on that when you saw it, 
has been greatly, greatly misunderstood and abused by Christians for many, many, many centuries. In the Spanish Inquisition, for example, it was used as a warrant, as a blank check for the coercion of others, brutality toward others. Jesus said we could do it. He said we could compel people to come to the banquet. But what you have to understand here is that in Jesus' highly stratified social context, people who have been long treated as despised, as unworthy, as unwanted, they're not going to easily believe that they're actually welcome at this lavish dinner. I mean, think in our day of a group of homeless people being invited to a dinner at a gated community protected by armed guards. Are they just going to run to the dinner? Grace is sometimes so hard to believe, isn't it? So hard to receive. This part of the story reminds me of what some of us have been hearing from our neighbors who live near East Chestnut. I'm not good enough. I don't sing beautiful enough. I don't dress well enough to come to your church. If this is so, then is a simple invitation to them to come going to be enough? Part of the vision for our upcoming community festival is to express our welcome to our neighbors more, dare I say it, compellingly. In a deeper way. To show that it's really meant. At the end of Jesus' story then, the host's house is suddenly filled with all the people who have long been banned from the temple. And all the people who have been marginalized until now from religious life. The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And Jesus' stunning words earlier that we heard last week in verse 11 are now being fulfilled. The exalted have been humbled, and the humbled have been exalted. In Luke, today's story takes place as Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. He's heading toward the cross, and he's focusing like a laser with those, his audiences, on the kingdom of God, this realm of justice and mercy, holiness and hospitality. And much of his kingdom show and tell happens at tables over food. You see, Jesus' notion that God has set a table where all people are welcome is absolutely electrifying. 
some folks, as we'll hear next week in Luke 15, are horrified and they cry out, this guy welcomes sinners and eats with them. And as I said last week, no doubt other people cry out those very same words with great joy. This guy welcomes sinners and eats with us, with us. What Jesus is doing here is picking up a storyline from the Bible that's been slow cooking in the Hebrew Scriptures for seven hundred years. As we heard in Isaiah 25, it's a vision of a beloved community of all peoples, Jews and despised Gentiles, coming together at God's table for a feast of rich food and well-aged wines. And friends, what this means is that at all the tables in our own lives as well, at our kitchen table, our cafeteria table, our community meal tables, our community festival tables in two weeks, our communion table next week, we get to live today by the way that it will someday be forever at our Lord's table. And this coming week, what particular person might the Holy Spirit be guiding you to share your table with? Who might that be? At work? or school, or home, or neighborhood. Let me extend a special challenge to all of our young people and all of our new teachers, not just new teachers, all of our teachers who are now starting out a new school year. This week, this week, in your school cafeteria, scan the room. Scan the room and notice who is alone or who needs to be invited to join in. Experience the joy of the kingdom and participate in the life of God. You see, practicing this kind of open table fellowship is still one of the most radical and Christ-like things that we can do. Did you see the article on Thursday? in the paper about a college football player from Florida State who was visiting an elementary school on Tuesday and sat down across from a boy with autism, made headlines. Though, if you look at the picture, it's fascinating. Though the cafeteria was completely full, that boy was sitting alone at his table. And the newspaper headline about this football player said, simple gesture, big impact. 
just by sharing a table with him. One of the things that I'm so hopeful about in Jesus' parable or that I find so hopeful, is the way that we see the servant, just like us, kind of slowly catching his master's big vision. As Kenneth Bailey points out, it's only after the servant comes back and says there's still more room at the table that the master actually instructs him now to share this invitation with everyone. It's as if the master is wanting to give the servant and give you and me enough time to catch the vision for broadening the mandate of the banquet. Enough time for the master's vision to become our vision. And one of the things I love most about East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church is that by God's grace, every Monday night, our congregation has been given a meal where God is working on us, working on us to expand our vision, to transform our kingdom eyes. And it's called our community meal. Think about it. Everyone in this city, everyone has a standing invitation to come. I don't know what we'd do if they did, but they have an invitation to come. But no one is excluded unless they themselves choose not to attend. Come in your wheelchair. Come in your bikini. And they have. Come with your mental and spiritual and physical illness. Come with your pain. There is no one whom Jesus draws to us that we will not struggle, struggle to receive and welcome. And God knows sometimes it's a struggle. All will be served. All we pray will be loved. All will be cherished. And as we participate in sharing God's amazing grace that we ourselves have received, none of us ever go home. None of us ever go home. Right, Greg? Quite the same.